Hey everyone, it's your host of See Jurassic Right, Stephen Ray Morris here, just dropping in to say, I hope you've been enjoying all the new episodes in 2023 and 2024 so far. There are new interviews with filmmakers, musicians, scientists, the screenwriter of Land Before Time, audio essays about the rich history of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World franchise, and all the news about the upcoming animated show Jurassic World Chaos Theory and the as-of-yet untitled Jurassic World sequel coming next summer. I really need your help supporting the show right now, and you can do that by leaving a tip and or giving a monthly follow on Patreon, patreon.com slash There are $1 and $5 tiers, but more is coming. Sharing the show, giving five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts, and liking and commenting on social, at Stephen Ray Morris on Instagram and Twitter, goes a long way to help boosting the show's visibility again online in this new era. I'm an independent podcaster and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One, two, three, four. Filled with unfright. See Jurassic Right Bathing Ember Light See Jurassic Right See Jurassic Right Right, right See Jurassic Right Right, right See Jurassic Right Right, right See Jurassic Right See Jurassic Right See Jurassic Park What is there to say? She's a science writer, author of Written in Stone, My Beloved Brontosaurus, when Dinosaurs Ruled, among many others, including her latest book, Did You See This Dinosaur, which is coming out. I think this will be out by the time this comes out. It's Riley Black. Oh, hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm, I, I felt like when I was trying to come up with questions, I just was like getting overwhelmed because you have such a, I mean, the, like the living the dinosaur lover's dream. And I guess just let's, I was like, just so I can keep it all like keep it all clear in my head were you a dinosaur kid growing up oh absolutely i think at the the very first illustration in my beloved brontosaurus past the front matter and everything is me as a kid under this like oversized uh rampharynchus uh, this this little toothy pterosaur which of course we know is not a dinosaur but it still counts it's still jurassic <laughs> um but, you know, un- under this paper mache model at this local museum uh, that I used to go to up in the hills in uh, New Jersey. And it was really emblematic. I included it there because it's, that's who I was at the time. Like everything 
was dinosaur. I think I went through a couple of phases where it was very briefly trucks and then it was elephants and then it was dinosaurs. So I guess like big and loud was my thing as a kid, or at least what I perceived as big and loud. And it just really, yeah. I mean, so many places, I mean, this was at the height of dinomania and it reminds me of a chapter I need to finish writing for the next edition of um, the complete dinosaur about dinomania, but this was in the mid to late eighties. So I was five or uh, in 1988 and that's when, you know, a lot of schools like my preschool had a dinosaur night. A lot of teachers were involved oh. in dinosaurs and teaching concepts. There was a lot of old like stop motion Ray Harryhausen movies on TV all the time. Museums, um, you know, had dinosaur exhibits and dynamation, like these animatronic dinosaurs. There were cartoons all over the place. So like it really was like everywhere you looked, there was dinosaur something. And then when I got to visit the American Museum of Natural History as a kid, and this was before the big renovation of uh, the late nineties and everything was still organized by time. So I drew a hall of Jurassic dinosaurs, no oh, wow. Cretaceous dinosaurs. That's when I saw, um, you know, the brontosaurus skeleton that they had there, uh, that famous, uh, T-Rex skeleton back in it's, you know, classic rearing back pose and everything. Oh, yeah, just yeah. As, yeah. Especially as a little kid, like they just seem extra big. Like even now, sometimes when I go to a museum, I try and like crouch down to about the same head height to try and appreciate it from the oh, same. Oh, th that's such a great idea. Level. Oh my gosh. Why haven't I been doing that? Yeah, uh, kind of a sort of Mesozoic mammal's eye view of <laughs> these yeah. animals. Uh, but that's what really, like, I was already hooked on dinosaurs. But that's what really, I think, solidified it was being able to see the real bones. I'd seen plenty of photos and illustrations and things, but to be there with them in this kind of museum environment, we could really imagine, like, what did they sound like? You, know, you wanted to see the skeleton start moving around. Like, that's what really you know, hooked me permanently. Oh, that's incredible. And this was, it's something that I talk a lot about on the podcast in the sense of, especially people around our age where it's like, I don't know if it's like chicken or the egg situation, but like, you know, because Jurassic Park came out right in the middle of all that, it's like, were you a dinosaur kid first because of just because of the time or because of Jurassic Park? But it looks like you were a dinosaur kid before Jurassic Park. Oh, certainly. I was 10 when Jurassic Park came out and that was a huge event for me. What really kind of makes me feel like a fossil is that in a couple of years, you know, sooner than we think, there are going to be young paleontologists like graduating graduate school, like becoming new curators, talking about Jurassic World being the influential <laughs> dinosaur movie of their childhood. And that just makes me feel so old. Oh, my. <laughs> but, oh no. no. Now uh, I'm feeling that too. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. wild. But I remember like leading up to the release, it was huge because at the time, if you wanted to see dinosaurs moving around in like film or, or television or anything, it's usually a rerun of something like Valley of Guanji or 100 million years BC or when dinosaurs ruled the earth. And they're all like fun movies for their own like schlocky kind of thing. But it was a disconnect. I was still like basically seeing the dinosaurs of like the 1960s and mm. 70s when when I opened a book, like a new dinosaur book, they were much different. They're much more active. They're brightly colored. You know, there are a lot of connections to birds like back then. Like we were pretty sure, but it wasn't as strong an argument as it is now. And so there's this disconnect between them. So Jurassic Park really stood because this was like the first time that we got to see dinosaurs like as we thought they were like we had this cutting edge science that was being brought to life in such a way that this is as close as we were going to get to time traveling back to the Mesozoic and I remember before the movie came out I was in fifth grade at the time 
And Jurassic Park was the first, I wanted to read it earlier because there's a dinosaur on the cover and I wanted to read everything dinosaur. My parents said like, no, you can't read that. That book's for grownups. But finally <laughs> with the movie coming out, they knew they couldn't avoid it anymore. I got the book. I think I read it in a day. Like I, I was told to go outside wow. and not spend the, like the summer day inside with my nose in the book. So I took the book and I walked around the garage outside reading this paper, the movie, you know, movie market paperback uh, until I finished it. And all those magazine issues that came out that year, like time had a cover story about new dinosaur discoveries, national geographic wow. had a cover that famous cover story with all that glorious art in it. Like it's kind of that movie wasn't just a movie itself. It was this big tent pole for like everything dinosaur right at that age where it's like just leaving elementary school and starting to think about like, Oh, okay. Like in about seven years or so, I'm going to be going to college. I better start thinking about what I'd like to do. And it really was this great catalyst to bring everything dinosaur together. That it wasn't just like this kind of pop culture ephemera that it was just made me fascinated all over again. Oh, wow. That, that reminds me. I remember cause yeah, it's like you see Jurassic parks, you want to read the Michael Crichton books. And then uh, my dad crossed out all the swear words from lost yeah. world before he <laughs> let me read it. Um, I that you know I didn't think about that idea though of like the um, the way that the dinosaurs are portrayed because I uh, between books and the movies because I do remember re getting uh one specific dinosaur encyclopedia I can't remember the name offhand from my grandma and that mm -hmm. was like weirdly a much older book and all the dinosaurs were standing like the T Rex at the Natural History Museum in New York the old like the the standing upright and the tail on the floor. And like, after seeing Jurassic park, you're like, what, what is this? What are these dinosaurs? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that's some of the arguments that we had, like, especially around Jurassic world coming out. Cause I was very vehement about like, I'd love to see, you know, update to the dinosaurs. I'd like to see them be more scientifically accurate. That was part of the magic of what made that movie, what it was for me was that these aren't just monsters, that these are like the best representations that we have of what the animals look like. And I think that people from the next generation or who only saw Jurassic Park after it had been like on video for a while and kind of missed all the excitement coming up about it. Like, of course, they're, they're not going to understand that, like what this event was for us. It's like it's kind of easy when you see like dinosaurs, you know, covered in feathers and stuff is like it's a normal thing but like at the time having a movie really care that much about scientific accuracy was a big deal and now of course we've changed the narrative quite a bit and that's fine but i still just i really wanted i wanted that again i still do i still hope that another movie or another franchise is going to do it to the same degree i know there have been a few i think there's a, a smaller studio production called dinosaur island with like feathered dinosaurs and stuff oh wow pretty neat but um, Jurassic Park is still that franchise is still basically the only game in town <laughs> when it comes to dinosaurs. And I'd love to see somebody else take a crack at it. Basically, what I'm saying is I want to see a fully rendered, accurate Therizinosaurus just waddle out on screen, even just for a cameo, even just for a second, just to be this big, gnarly bird thing and make people see you say, what's that? <laughs> And yeah, I can be happy for 30 seconds and then I'll be good. Yeah, like it can break the fourth wall. It can like wave at the camera. Like, I don't care as long as it's as long as it's accurate. Yeah, uh, absolutely. No, that I mean, but I, I agree with you 100%. It's I, I think maybe there it, it's I think it's a little lost on. I don't know if it's I don't know who it's lost on, I guess. But 
there to me, I think an element that made Jurassic Park very special was that it was there was an element of edutainment to it as you know as you know much as there is inaccuracies and stuff in the original movie um in in that sense like you said it it was you know part of why you wanted to study dinosaurs and write about them and stuff and i i think there is value in maybe i i was talking about this with uh jada elcock who does animal facts about how i there was a, a small community of folks who were annoyed at fallen kingdom because nobody said the dinosaurs names out loud, Mm. (laughs) which I'm like, Oh, you're right. Like the thing that's fun about Jurassic park, it's like Gallimimus, you know, like Tyrannosaurus Rex, Dilophosaurus, like nobody says Stiggy Mullock in fallen kingdom. Nobody says Allosaurus. Like, I I think there is one moment when they do, but you're right that it's much, the, the tone is very much changed because it's not a paleontologist taking kids through a dinosaur park It's now we're very much in a horror story. Yeah, I knew I noticed that in Battle at Big Rock. I don't know if you've seen the short mm-hmm. film yes. that the kid that the kid does say the names. And I was like, yes, like finally we got this back. <laughs> right. And the thing I want to make clear is that I think with these movies, like I would love to see more accurate dinosaurs. And of course, like what is accurate? Because we're always reconstructing them and making educated guesses and things like that anyway. But I'd love to see like 21st century, like scientifically vetted uh, non-avian dinosaurs in these movies but at the same time like i don't think anyone's being like hurt by seeing <laughs> hybrids or inaccurate dinosaurs or, or things like that or the fact that brachiosaurs in those movies still chew like cows when we know they didn't do that or you know uh, dilophosaurus having the neck frill and everything else like if we want to go back to the original movie it's inaccurate in terms of many aspects of its paleontology computer science genetic engineering like you know, it's it's very science-y, but there's a lot that's wrong with it. And yet, like, we still turned out okay. I grew up watching dinosaurs on TV that were dragging their tails and looked like big crocodiles and stuff. And that somehow I turned out okay. So it's more a matter of preference than, like, oh, please, somebody think of the children. Like, they're gonna, <laughs> how are they going to know about feathers? Like, no, that's not the issue at <laughs> stake. That's, that's, I really, I, I never thought about it that way before. That's a really, uh, that's a really eloquent way of putting it in that sense, like, yeah, because it, 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 you still went on to, it inspired you to go on and learn more and, and to learn, you know, all the facts for yourself. And, you know, it, and, and when I'm doing this series, I wanted, you know, a lot of people who, I guess, how, how did you go from being that kid that loves dinosaurs to starting to write about it, starting to make it something that is your career? Yeah. So I kind of plowed my own path on that one because I wasn't a very good student. So I was told from the time I was a little dinomaniac, uh, <laughs> you know, middle school and high school student that if I wanted to study paleontology, I'd have to go out West and there didn't seem to be a route for me to do that. And, uh, I got told the phrase like there are no dinosaurs in New Jersey and that's patently not true. Some of our very first dinosaur discoveries from North America, at least the scientifically described ones came from New Jersey, came from the green sand and marl pits of southern New Jersey, like Hadrosaurus and Dryptosaurus, where I got my blog name Laylapse from. Those came from southern New Jersey. It's actually a pretty good place to start learning about paleontology and the Mesozoic. But my teachers and, and folks didn't know that. So I kind of shifted over uh, to, to sharks, like sharks and marine biology became uh, a huge interest for me as, as well. Um, you know, famous Otodus megalodon, like really kind of, I think, bridged that gap a little bit. You start learning about fossil sharks and you see how cool modern sharks are and it all goes together. I guess stuff with like big, scary teeth is just kind of like <laughs> what, what keeps drawing me in. 
But I just start, I started going down that path, keeping up with dinosaur stuff as I could, but I never thought I'd make it any kind of career. When I went to college, I started marine biology, and um, I was a little bit too driven to focus on the animals I wanted to study. I was very driven to study, um, you know, sharks and, and giant squid, and particularly ecosystems. So, like, I was that kid that, you know, scientists probably hate, or was like, I want to study great white sharks. It's like, well, you're going to learn to sift plankton. So, <laughs> get used to that first. And we all do this in, in all our, our fields. So, that wasn't really working very well. For me, I switched to an ecology major, and that wasn't really working for me either because I started to get more interested in um, the ecology of like a hypercarnivore. So things like, you know, jaguars and leopards and hyenas and things like that, or, you know, the zoological aspect of it. And a lot of what was being taught at the school was like wetland ecology and things like that, which is very important. I don't want to like knock <laughs> forestry and some of these other things. It just, it was, I couldn't find my thing from where I was. And the longer I spent in college, the more frustrated I became because I got stuck. My average was, was so low and I'd been there so long that they wouldn't let me change majors. So just out of frustration one day, I think I went into a class that um, was supposed to be like calculus for ecology. And I sat through the first class. It's like, I'm going to fail this course. I need to get out of this course. So I dropped it. I said, well, what else can I add? And I saw this course called Topics in African Prehistory, which is basically the, the fossil record of Eastern Africa dealing with the human origins and related fossil finds. I'm like, okay, that seems interesting. And I didn't know it was basically a seminar class where you read a bunch of papers and you discuss them and you basically make a presentation oh. each week and the whole class discusses it. And by that time, I had started to use my... Um, institutional library access to access papers like i still love dinosaurs and fossils and stuff so i'd start you know using my library computer access to get those papers and books and read them and i started blogging about them because i took enough education courses to know you know what's called the learning pyramid right so like if you hear something you may or may not remember it but if you get to the point where like you hear something you think about it you put your own interpretation on it, you write about it, you express it to somebody else. By then, like, you have a solid grip on this. So I figured, like, writing about fossils and paleontology oh. would be a good way, yeah, to not only communicate to other people, but just to remember what I was learning because it felt like this whole world that I was only just starting to get to formally know. I knew all the pop culture stuff and I knew, like, stuff that I read in popular books, but I wanted, like, the real information, like, how much of the skeleton is known, how old is it, and what comes after what, and who's related to whom. So it was those two things, like starting to get read those papers and blog about them and then uh, taking some of those academic courses in paleontology, even though they were outside of my major, that really confirmed to me like, hey, like, I'm really interested in this. I seem to have a knack for it. And I started getting ideas about like, OK, blog articles I wanted to write. I wanted to write a book, which eventually became written in stone. And through my blogging efforts, um, this was about 10 years ago now, which is like ancient history in terms of these things. Um, there was a site called scienceblogs.com that picked me up and I moved my blog Laylapse over there. And that led to a gig at Smithsonian writing a blog called Dinosaur Tracking. And it was around then that my first book came out, and which immediately led to the second book, My Beloved Brontosaurus. And the blog moved around from my initial science blog spot to Wired and then later National Geographic and then Scientific American before ending. But really the way that all this happened was like, I was a poor student. I felt stuck. I was really frustrated, but I used the spot I was in 
to access these papers and books and try to basically teach myself to the point where I started networking with actual researchers and paleontologists. And they started to say like, Hey, do you want to come out on a dig? Do you want to oh. come help us go look for fossils? And it just kind of built on itself from there. It's an, it's interesting. It's almost, I feel like hearing your story and, and just feeling the way that people wanting to kind of follow their passions. It's almost like wherever you're stuck now, it's like, where can I, yeah, how can I use this to, you know, can I, can, can that where I am now get me to a connection that gets me a little bit closer to what I want to do? Like you're saying, having the access to like, that's the kind of thing I, I hope people listening, it's like, if they can stop now and it's like, if they're frustrated with where they are, maybe they can be like, Oh wait, but because I'm this currently, I can get, to there or something. I don't know. That's so right. There's all kinds of different routes to it. And that's one of the things I want to make really clear because sometimes I botched this question in, in, in the past because I didn't think about it hard enough. But in terms of how to become a paleontologist or how to get involved in paleontology, there's almost as many routes to get there as there are people. Uh, number one, in terms of professional um, avenues, you not only have university professors and museum curators and, and people like that, like the kind of people that you often see on TV or, you know, writing articles or papers or in the news. But you also have like whole squads of people that are behind that person that make paleontology go. So people like collections managers who are basically fossil librarians who oversee the proper cataloging and curation of those fossils, people who work in the prep lab as their main career, you know, cleaning up fossils and putting them back together and doing reconstructions. You have people in mitigation who they'll work for uh, like a fossil fuel company or a construction company. And when there's a new site that's being opened up, they'll go and check that place first to see what fossils are there and basically rescue those fossils before construction or drilling starts. <laughs> Wow. Not to mention things like paleo art or what I do in terms of science journalism or, um, you know, making educational videos or things. There are all these different ways to get involved in it, not to mention all the volunteer work that goes on. That paleontology really rests on the back of like armies of volunteers who really should get more recognition. They go out every year, every summer who looking for new fossils, excavating them, prepping them in the lab. Like you don't need to make it your career to be involved and make contributions. It's like, I can't even tell you how many fossils are named for volunteers who just put in the hours to, to find that specimen or to clean it up and put it back together. So there are really all these different routes to get into there. So if you, if you really desire to be like the director of a museum or the curator of a paleontology department or something, that's a very narrow path. And there are some specific steps to get there. But if you kind of zoom out from those few you know, very visible jobs to everything else. There's so many ways to find a pathway in, into this field. Wow. That's, that's, that's very hopeful. I think, or at least for me, that's like in Hollywood, it's like, if you want to be a television writer, it's like, you have to, you know, work in a writer's room or something like that. But even that stuff is starting to break down as well too. Yeah. Um, well, you can take it from, uh, from me, you know, especially through, uh, my career choices, the fact that I'm a trans person. If, if somebody tells you, you can't be, dot 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 just tune the rest out and do what you feel you need to do you'll 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 yeah. get there it might not be easy but you can get there yeah there's a few directions i i am thinking about but i i guess part of me wanted to talk about you know your writing and and as far as like reading the actual you know papers and translating that and you know how do you you know because i feel like you're writing you you always like to share a little bit about yourself which i which i love because to me it's like all of this relates back to who I like everything I do. I feel like this is an expression of who I am. And 
So how did you develop that voice and then also kind of balance taking all of this scientific material in? I think a lot of it started with my early inspiration um, in science writing, and that was Stephen Jay Gould's essays. So during the 1980s and early 1990s, it was kind of like the biggest boom time for science journalism and science writing I think that there's ever been. That was really the heyday of writers like Gould and Dawkins and Wilson and uh, lots of other folks. You had all kinds of science magazines doing gangbusters business. Um, but it was really Gould's essays that really drew me in because I really liked his personal approach. And I noticed like as I started blogging that his essays were kind of like blog posts before there were blogs, like in another era, like if another like 15 years had passed, like he might may well have been uh, blogging his essays instead of getting them in, into um, you know, sort of book or essay format as they were. But there's always like an I who was talking and saying like, this is who I am. This is how I'm connecting to this. I was fascinated by this piece of history and this is how it connects. And I think that's really helpful and you know creates a connection to the reader because I don't have... Um, well, I have an associate's degree in education, but that's the only degree that I have. I don't have a BS. I didn't get a PhD. I have no formal authority. So that for me, it always seemed impossible from the beginning to just say, well, I'm going to explain this to you and just kind of write a textbook or, or be very authoritative about it. The way that I could connect with the audience was by saying, yeah, I think this is really cool and interesting. And this is why. And these are how these pieces connect to each other. And part of it was just survival, just finding a way to write. But I think a large part of it has to do with Gould's influence in terms of just seeing how powerful that could be. Because if you're talking about dinosaurs or you're talking about anything, but let's say you know, we're talking about dinosaurs, if you expect somebody to come in and tell you everything that you'd want to know about stegosaurs, for example, that, you know, if they started throwing in a lot of like kind of personal asides or, or other things, random bits of information halfway, it's like, well, wait, like I was expecting to like learn about the animals. What's all this other stuff? But if you start out with saying, OK, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to tell you about. And this is why I think it's interesting. And this is how it connects to all these other pieces. I think you have a lot more avenues to reach people. And I never really wanted to be that kind of person who was like, I am just going to explain this to you partially because I feel like that sets up this false image of what science is, that we're just here to kind of collect data and collect facts and convey them to the public. And then that's something that's known. and That's it. And just about everything either has been changed or can change or will change. That science is a process. It's constantly ongoing. And it matters who is doing the science and what their background is and what their motivation is, the, the human side of, of science. So I think part of that to me is just trying to show how science really works and how people do science. The science isn't this unassailable sort of process that we just discovered one day. Um, and it's led us to all kinds of like facts and that's it. It's like, it's really this messy, <laughs> really complicated and often wrong process that still yet has been so useful and so enlightening. And that's the way that I like to approach it is really saying, like, this is how I perceive it. This is how I see it. And that way, if I'm totally wrong, someone might, you know, maybe after I'm dead or something, say like, oh, well, yeah, this was Riley's background. This was her perspective. So obviously, like, maybe she missed this or maybe this is a, why she was so passionate about this particular topic. They can analyze me or whatever all, all they want. But it's just a, the important point is that who is doing this, who is doing the speaking, who's doing the analyzing, all that stuff matters. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, truly, uh, like your article 
that was the the sort of rebuttal of the the toxic masculinity of you know maybe not toxic but just like the you know machismo of paleontology it, to me it's almost like personal stuff is so important because it, it like you're saying science you know is a process and so if we are stuck with these old images in our minds that can be very to me it almost seems like it could be very damaging to the future uh, i mean of any field where it's like this can only be this way absolutely and this is something that we know from sociologists of, of science and i think they must beat their heads against the wall constantly because we don't listen to them half as much as we should about these things. But that representation matters. Who you see doing the science, who you see talking about it, like that makes a huge difference. Being able to relate to somebody else and say like, oh, wow, I didn't know that somebody like me could do that. And honestly, there have been times that I've thought about quitting my career, just like that's gotten really frustrating or hard to survive or whatever it is. But part of what keeps me going, especially now, is that, you know, we, we still have a very uneven um, playing field when it comes to paleontology and who's represented and who gets to do the science and who's rewarded and who's in it. Uh, you know, there are a number of um, folks like me in, in the field, but very few of us are actually visible. And if people, you know, don't prefer to be, that's that's their personal choice. But the point is, like, I'm hoping that, you know, when I'm old or even after I'm gone, that somebody can look at something I wrote or did or whatever and say like, yeah, that like helped me get into the field and show me that I can do it, that this isn't just uh, sort of an Indiana Jones cosplay club, that like this is open <laughs> for, for everybody. And I think that's the more that we do with that, the better the field will become. One of my favorite examples is, you know, everybody's heard about the alpha wolf, right? So this is a non-paleo example, but I think yeah. it's great. And this is documented in Barry Lopez's book uh, of wolves and men, which is great. But after World War II, you have a lot of these naturalists who did serve in the military, and now they're going to be uh, researchers and zoologists for you know various government agencies or universities. And, you know they're doing something else, and they decide to study wildlife. And as they're studying wolves, what they're seeing is wolves that have like generals and they have ranks and they're very coordinated and organized and all that stuff. But that's because they were just in a war and that's the way that they were seeing it. Now that we've been able to get some different perspectives, we can say like, actually there is no such thing as an alpha wolf, that this isn't male dominated and like ranged into ranks and things like that. That basically the background of these few researchers told us what this truth was when in fact they were viewing it through the prism of their own experience. And the more experiences we have, the better we're going to understand world around us. It's the same thing with so many arguments about, you know, sort of nature, red and tooth and claw is competition more important is cooperation more important. What, how do these two things meet together? The, the various assumptions that we have about all sorts of things influence the science. So that's what, when people say like, well, science isn't political to keep your politics out of science. Like, why does it matter what your identity is? It's like, it demonstrably does like this. <laughs> you're asking a question that doesn't make sense because we know that it does. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, beautifully said, I mean, speaking of the field, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. what, cause you, cause you've been like, to me, like, again, it's that idea of like, uh, you know, um, not having any experience or not, you know, not having any, you know, degree or anything like that, but, you know, going out in the field and getting to do work, field work and contribute to, to research and things like that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Some memories of either researching a book or an article or just kind of uh, field work stories in general? Yeah, I wish I could remember more research for 
books and articles, but all of them, they kind of feel so ephemeral. Like I'm working on like six things at any one time that sometimes it's hard to remember. Uh, a lot of them come from uh, the literature itself. It's rare that I've been able to go sort of out in the field to research something. A lot of it is like a paper will come through that has an interesting an interesting tidbit, an interesting idea, and then I get in touch with the researcher, you know, behind that paper, and then I get an outside comment, and it's all very sort of like formalized. This is the bread and butter of how science journalism works. Uh, you'll notice it if you ever read a, a science journalism article. Uh, many of them, especially like you know, a breaking news stuff, so like a new species of dinosaur discovered, they follow this pattern called the inverted pyramid, where it gives you kind of the conclusion up top and the headline, the first paragraph, gives you a little bit of background, comments from researcher A comments of researcher B who wasn't involved in the study and then kind of wrap it all up with a conclusion. And that's how most of it goes. And that's fine. It's really cool to communicate stuff that's brand new, but going a little deeper, like writing a book, um, my beloved Brontosaurus, for example, a lot of that came from just synthesizing years worth of blog posts and other things that I've been doing, seeing, okay, like I know about this cool study and that cool study and this other thing, like how do I arrange these together? Like I want to make this argument that, you know, the way dinosaurs change really tracks how science works and they're always going to be changing. What examples can I pick from what I've written about to, um, you know, make sense of that, that argument in terms of field work, it's really, it really is work. I'll put it that way. There are some times <laughs> when I'm out there and like, you'd think I'd be like the happiest person in the world to be like looking for dinosaurs, but it can be brutal. Uh, you know, the temperatures, it's extremely hot, you know, where it's so hot, where you're just looking to find any shade. And usually in places where like, I don't have a nice shade tree or something, usually there might be like a juniper shrub that I can kind of like cozy up to. And there are a bunch of harvester ants underneath it. Um, oh. <laughs> that's about what, oh, no. what we've got. And you're facing, you know, sunburn and dehydration. There are sometimes biting bugs, um, as well as just dealing with, um, you know, some of the other like hazards you bring with you. Like I've heard more than one story. Thankfully I've never done this, but people who put uh, some of the consultants that we bring out with us, things that we call a Vinac, where it's a combination of these little plastic beads and acetone. You kind of squirt this on a fossil and it invades all the cracks and then it hardens and then it makes it so that, um, you know, it's easier to, to excavate. It's a little bit better supported. I've known people that put that in an algae bottle and forget that's not water and take a big no. slug of it. And then you gotta deal with that in the middle of nowhere. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. That is oh really bad. But through that all, it's the little things. It's kind of like this idea in psychology that intermittent rewards will keep you hooked on something longer, whether we're talking about, um, you know, you're pulling a lever at a slot machine or, you know, you have a crush on somebody and you just only really remember, like you hang your heart on like the little good interactions that they say while you're like an anxious mess the rest of the time. It's those yeah. intermittent good things that keep you going. And one of my favorite stories is a couple years ago, I was uh, outside the Canyonlands area in uh, southeastern Utah. Most of the field work I do is in Utah or the Four Corners uh, region. And we're in the late Triassic, so about 220 million years old. Uh, you know, beautiful, beautiful landscape. I'm happy just to be hiking around out there. And somebody very quickly after leaving the truck found most of a phytosaur skull. So a phytosaur is sort of one of these things that looks kind of like a crocodile, but was not a crocodile. Like if you took a gharial and moved its nostrils almost up between its eyes, that's pretty much what a phytosaur looked like. And, you know, mostly complete skulls, a little beaten up, but it was one of these things that you hope to find where you just like walk right up to it and be like, yep. That's a skull, like no, like barely any excavation needed. Wow. 
And I'm not normally a very competitive person in most aspects of my life. But in terms of fossil hunting, like I always want to find the first thing. And if not the first thing, I want to find the best thing. And after I find that thing, I want to find something even better and just keep going. Like I'm never quite satisfied. And at the end, I say, okay, that was a good trip. Or I got skunked again. I guess I'll try, you know, next year. (laughs) But in this case, I decided, okay, like everybody's gathered around the skull and searching that area. I'm going to go a little bit further. And there's this sort of this ledge that's about 10 feet above where my head level was. So I climb up to it and it's not easy footing, but I want to check anyway. It looks like it might be good for fossils. And I'm walking along and I see a couple invertebrate traces. Um, so like these little divots that an invertebrate, something like a worm would have made in the, in uh, the ancient sediments. Like, okay, that's kind of cool. Like it's good to know that fossils are here, at least not what I'm looking for, but that's neat. And then a few feet away from that, it looks like the ground just like reached up to give me like a high, Five. And what it was, was the back foot of this animal called an Aedosaur. So like if an armadillo were a reptile and about the size of a pig, that's more or less what you're, you're looking at. So it was the back foot and there was a front foot impression as well. And just this one slab that I could easily pick up. So I did the right thing. I sat down, I took out my field notebook and I'm just like happily scribbling notes and everything else. And I take it over to the other folks and they're like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. I like keep, keep looking. And I thought that was going to be it for the day because it usually is. But as I continue to look in that area, I found uh, a set of a couple dinosaur tracks. I found a slab with these little three-toed imprints. It's hard to tell whether it's a dinosaur or one of these dinosaur-like crocodile things, but where it kind of did the stutter step thing, like trying to find its footing. I found the fossil of this palm-like tree that wasn't a palm that lived in the Triassic called San Miguelia. So in this one area that I thought like, oh, it's probably not going to be all that good, but I'll give it a try anyway. I found like five different uh, trace fossils from as many different groups of animals. And I was just grinning from ear to ear that like, I I still smile when I think about that (laughs) memory sitting there, you know, making the field notes, taking that stuff down from the ledge was a little bit more difficult because now that I found it, I have the honor of (laughs) bringing a frame pack up there and putting all these big pieces of rock on it and trying and having to hike it all the way back out to the car over and over again. But uh, yeah, I still keep those photos like in my favorites file on my phone because those are the sorts of things where, you know, most of the time you find little fossil crumbs and you kind of follow that and see, okay, there's a bone here. Doesn't look great, but it seems to be going in. I'm going to excavate a little bit and then hopefully you find something bigger and it's really, really nice. But you don't really know what you've got, um, you know, for maybe the rest of that season, maybe for a couple of years. In this case, with these fossils, you could just like walk right up on it and see what it was and see that it was something special. Just that it's those moments that keeps me going back to it. Wow, that's so incredible. Do you just now, whenever you're walking around or like and you see any kind of like rock formation, you're like, like you're trying to just spot fossils everywhere you go now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like it, it doesn't stop. I went to Arches National Park a couple of weeks ago and that's a place that records a lot of the Mesozoic, a lot of the Triassic and Jurassic is exposed uh, in Arches National Park. And there actually is a wealth of fossils that are known from the park. They just try not to talk about it all that much so that visitors won't um, steal or destroy them. But like as I was going up along these rock fins on the uh, primitive trail hike, I could look out in the distance and see Morrison Formation Hill. So the Morrison Formation is this late Jurassic Western North America formation. That's where we get, um, you know, Brontosaurus, Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, Ceratosaurus, Diplodocus, like all these super famous, wonderful, like classic 
dinosaurs and just seeing those distinctive, you know, gray and purple maroon banded rocks. Like I wanted to get over there and start poking around. Like I knew I wasn't allowed to and I, I shouldn't have <laughs> and I didn't. But it just like every time I see something like that, it's like, I wonder what's in there. Because you never know, like from one year to the next, you might pass by a spot a dozen times and there could be something right under your feet or something that you totally miss. Um, one of my favorite examples, I, I wasn't involved in this, but I just like the story, was of a baby Parasaurolophus, a dinosaur named Joe, that's at the uh, Raymond M. Alf Museum. And during one of their ex expeditions, they rely on uh, high school students that go to the web schools there who study paleontology oh. and go on these expeditions. There's this particular kind of cupcake-shaped hoodoo, this rock formation, in Grand Staircase in southern Utah. And like the group had walked past this particular spot for years. It was just the route that they took to kind of get to the put-in for looking for fossils. And just one day, one of the students just looked and saw bone sticking out of it. And they excavated it. And it was the mostly complete uh, articulated skeleton of a baby Parasaurolophus had just been waiting there that people had missed year <laughs> after year after year that was just waiting there. So just based upon any given day, like what the light is like, where you're looking, all these things you can, you like, you know, you're going to miss stuff. You just hope that you're lucky enough to get that little glint or glimmer or a little like, Hey, that's weird. That, you know, shows off something really important. <laughs> we, it's been here this whole time. Mm -hmm. I'm even like looking at my window right now. Cause they're building a new, mm -hmm building next door and there's just exposed rock and i'm just like can i see a bone from my window <laughs> yeah and that kind of stuff happens all the time there's somebody um i think it was a kid who found a uh, false saber-toothed cat so one of these animals called a nimravid that's looks like a saber-toothed cat it's related to cats but it's not quite a true cat uh in badlands national park just found a skull like a really gorgeous skull just right by the visitor center and it's funny how often that it's kids and younger people or people who it's their first time in the field who find stuff. I think sometimes like over the years, jaded isn't the right word, but I think when you get a bunch of experience, you think, okay, like I like the look of that outcrop or I, I checked that last year. It doesn't have anything <laughs> in it. And I think it's important to come to the field with kind of like new eyes each time and not be afraid to pick stuff up. Like basically don't think that you know too much. That weird looking rocket might not actually be a rock at all. And I think that's why like so many people who like normally don't go out into the field or it's their first time or they're just somebody just poking around. They see something interesting. They make a lot of these kind of surprise finds where no one expected them because we make all these assumptions about where we're going to find stuff and what it's going to look like and what we're looking for and all that stuff. But if you just you know, ha kind of have an open mind, like still train down like where you're looking overall. So you're not like looking in like a lava deposit or something for fossils. <laughs> you're not going to find them. But a lot of these things rely on the fact that it just takes that that basic curiosity and keeping that alive, not assuming that, you know, too much. The fossil record is always going to surprise you if you let it. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What is the thing that has most surprised you about dinosaurs that maybe you didn't know as a kid, but you do now? <sighs> That's a tough one because I, I feel like there's just been so many discoveries. I think if I were a little bit older... Some of the finds about, you know, warm bloodedness and the connection to birds and stuff would be really surprising. But like I grew kind of I grew up when that stuff was being popularized. So it's not quite as surprising. But I think just the number of different display structures that dinosaurs had that we didn't know anything about, um, those like continue to surprise me. I think there's a lot more on the way as well. So whether we're talking oh, about, cool. um, you know, feathers and feather colors or even um, colors in armor, things like a uh, Borealopelta from, from Canada, an armored dinosaur that they've worked out the color scheme for yeah. that stuff, the ability to do that's really surprising, but just that now we're getting an idea of just like how flashy these animals were, that it's not this idea of shrink wrapping where you just have the skeleton, you just <laughs> kind of put muscle and skin on it and bam, you're done. That even something like Edmontosaurus that's been known for over a hundred years had this dorky little beanie cap on the top of its head that we knew nothing about until somebody just found the right fossil. And now like, if you're going to draw an Edmontosaurus, it better have that stupid little hat on it. Um, and I, I love things like that. Or the fact that we know like Microraptor had like iridescent plumage um, that these, and cause it makes them much more alive. It makes them, yeah. you know, takes them out of that kind of monster realm a bit and makes them, more vital because then you can start asking questions like, well, why is it that color? Why did it have that display structure? It's like, well, maybe it was for a mate. Well, what did their mating system look like? And when did that happen? And how did that work? And it opens up all these other questions. So those are my favorite finds, the stuff that it's not just like, oh, okay, that's a neat update, but it really opens up all these other questions and possibilities. Well, I mean, in tying to that, in uh, because the, you know, you wrote an article on the dinosaur cancer uh, what is your what in your opinion are like either the like the biggest or most important kind of paleontology or dinosaur news from this year, twenty twenty? Yeah, I, <laughs> if anybody's listening to this in like <laughs> five years or a year from now, yeah, I'm actually writing about a couple of them for uh, Discover Magazine's Year in Science issue, which will be out at the end of the year. And it's kind of hard oh, picking awesome. something when the year's not over yet. But yeah, yeah, that's true. No, I, yeah. I think. The thing that was most popular, maybe not the most surprising, but the most popular was the uh, Spinosaurus tail. Yeah. And that also kind of confirming that this animal really did have weird proportions because part of that, it wasn't just that this sailback crocmouthed croc uh, dinosaur had a long paddle-like tail and was likely um, semi-aquatic to some degree. It was that that came from the quarry that had been uh, basically ransacked for the commercial market earlier and that was one of the big questions was does the skull piece go with the back legs go with these other parts are they from multiple animals are they from multiple species and then working out some of the geology of that site that really seems like no it really had a really weird long tail and stubby legs and had really odd body proportions and i thought that was pretty exciting and just like spinosaurus is like a celebrity like on par with (laughs) t-rex at this point the most 
One of the most important stories, I think, has to do with uh, Ocula Dentavis. So what was thought to be a dinosaur turns out to be a lizard. So early in the year, uh, and I wrote about the story for Scientific American. I wanted to do a follow-up, but it didn't really work out. So the Discover story is kind of the follow-up to it. The skull was found in amber, and it had this little toothy snout and this big eye, and it seemed to be from a hummingbird-sized either early bird or a non-aving dinosaur that very much like a bird. The, the sort of evolutionary relationships weren't entirely clear. But it was heralded as like the smallest fossil dinosaur ever um, found. It was finally discovered, and we had this awesome skull. Well, very quickly thereafter, there were a lot of controversy surrounding this in terms of, well, that amber comes from an region of uh, Myanmar that is going through a lot of uh, conflict right now, a lot of military conflict, where people are basically trying to take over the amber mines, both the military from the Myanmar government and also people who are resisting those forces. And everyone's vying for control of these amber mines because that amber is often smuggled out into China and then sold. Um, So when scientists buy these amber pieces, they might be fueling genocide. And that's, you know, obviously something that you don't want to do. There are pieces that are vetted and can be double checked, but this piece, it's like, it's unclear where it came from. And then on top of that, it turned out that there was a second specimen that uh, had already been found that was being studied in parallel that hadn't been published yet. That definitively shows that this is not a bird. It's in fact, a lizard. It's a really weird 99 million year old lizard. So that paper, the original one had to be retracted and we're still using um, that name, Oculodentavis, which basically means um, eye tooth bird for what's a really weird lizard. And I just, I, to me, that was one of the most important stories because it got at like the way science is done. There's the sort of the process yeah. of science and that something is described. Oops, it's a misinterpretation. We're going to update our interpretation, but also the context of how we do science, how do we get these specimens, where do they come from, how are these things vetted, what are the ethics involved in, in paleontology. So to me, that was, you know, even if it's not necessarily the happiest story, it's an important story because it really gets at you know, it's how the science is done. Yeah, no, it's, well, yeah, and it, I think, I mean, it, I think it matters because it's like, the, you know, this is, this is how it rests on and it's like, are we, you know, I think, I mean, it's, it's funny that the um, thinking about you know, it's right in Jurassic Park when, you know, Malcolm has the criticisms of discovery and, you know, colonialism and stuff. And it's like, it kind of go- all goes back to that. And like, how can we be comfortable with doing things that are, you know, that, you know, we, you know, we say are discoveries, but are also destructive in some ways, too. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, people have divergent opinions about these things. To me, I think the ethical case for not describing fossils where you don't know where they came from, if they're coming from a questionable place, or they might be involved in like atrocities, like don't do that. But other people make the case, well, like if we don't pick up these fossils and describe them, then somebody else will, and they'll be lost to science. And we don't have this information. Um, I don't think that's a particularly strong argument because oftentimes <laughs> there are other specimens or those specimens eventually wind up at a museum or something anyway. Um, but it, it is an argument that's being made. It's sort of like, well, like, yes, there are ethical problems, but this is for the greater scientific good. But what does that even mean? And what's the tradition behind it? Uh, and I'm glad that you yeah. brought up that sort of uh, Malcolm perspective, because I think I like him in the movie much more than in the book. I think in the book, he's kind of like a stand in for Crichton. He's just kind of like sniping at everything. <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum yeah. made him much more charismatic. 
Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, jumping, jumping on this, uh, jumping on the Jurassic thing a little bit mm-hmm. again, the Jurassic thing, as if it's, I'm not on a. I mean, it kind of is. It's kind of, you know, we've had a few other dinosaurs and stuff in, in media over the years, but it really, you know, it dominates the media landscape like a T-Rex when you talk about dinosaur stuff. Like how many articles, even articles that I've written, have made some reference or another to Jurassic Park? Well, and you got to, you you were the resident paleontologist for Jurassic World. And I guess what was that like in terms of, because this is a um, a movie that you liked and, you know, or, you know, the original movie and... And so it, it, it's always that thing where, like, for things I, I like, if I'm finally doing that thing, it's I almost feel a little bit of a pressure. It's like, oh, no, now I'm I go from a fan to now being part of the thing. Like, mm. I guess maybe I'm just I'm putting too much of myself in that. But how, how was that experience like for you? Yeah, so uh, I'll mention that. I, so I was hired by the marketing team to originally write some like dinosaur newsletters and dinosaur facts and vet some sort of those things for um, the online outreach for it. Uh, I wasn't involved. I haven't been involved in uh, the movies. I think it was Jack Horner. I think it's Steve Rizzotti, who's the current uh, paleo consultant for the films. But I've worked pretty consistently um, with the marketing team. I've done a few other uh, branch off things that they set up, like some Watch Mojo videos and uh Coyote Peterson had some YouTube videos where I went to the Field Museum with that group. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been great to just geek out about dinosaurs and kind of do some fact checking on like, okay, we need, you know, a weight estimate or a height estimate or information about this animal's behavior. So if you buy like one of the toys, for example, and you scan the QR code or whatever it is, and you see like the kind of vital statistics about, um, you know, these dinosaurs and other prehistoric creatures, like I usually am the person who's, um, having a look at that, vetting it, trying to make it as accurate as it possibly can, which is always kind of a bit of a dance because you're dealing with these animals that in the movies they've, they've said, like we're trying to make them cooler, not realistic. They're, they're basically monsters. But then when we present them to the public through, you know, the various other forms, like I'm trying to keep them as accurate as possible because a kid who's playing like with a Carnotaurus toy might not always be doing that in reference to the Jurassic Park franchise. They might play with it just thinking about, you know, uh, you know, Cretaceous South America or with their other dinosaurs or something like that. So that's been a large part of my role. And it's, it's been great. I mean, they've been really nice. And I think if anything, I, I think some uh, paleo folks saw me as a little bit of a sellout by <laughs> um, joining up with us because I've been you know critical about some of the decisions like not to make the dinosaurs accurate. In fact, I think that's how I got the job. I'd written a couple of just like blog posts, just assuming that nobody would read them, but just saying like, I'd love to see feathers like please like take a chance and make this scientifically accurate dinosaurs and they didn't go with that route but um unbeknownst to me at the time folks at universal noticed these things it's like okay if you're really this passionate about it and you want to help us out like this is a way to do it and i really enjoyed that and i I appreciate that like they could just you know slap whatever information you know on the stuff that they could but i i'm glad that um you know even if it wasn't me i'd be glad that they've reached out to folks trying to make it as accurate as as they can where there's that flexibility oh i mean so it's like even if the movie itself isn't necessarily like we talked about earlier that the sort of maybe if the edutainment element of the movies isn't as much of uh you know part of the dna (laughs) i can't believe i waited this long to make a, a pun i'm so sorry but uh, I'm glad that the tie-in media, the thing like, you know, the toys, the things that kids are going to get, the, the stuff that 
the kids are going to live with, you know, when, you know, because there's lots of kids who, who aren't watching the movies, who are still playing with the toys and are getting the, you know, the, the books and things. And I, I'm glad that they're still, yeah, I'm, they're still creating that kind of stuff. I know like the Jurassic World website had all that kind of information about all the dinosaurs. Like, I'm still thankful that even if it's maybe not as a big of a part of the movies, at least it's still a part of you know, getting this out there or whatever. Right. And I think that's part of the fascination with these things that we can say that they're movie monsters and stuff all we want, but we know like the names our names of real animals, things that were really once alive. And even if it's sort of the a Hollywood version and not as we would reconstruct it or restore that animal today, it's still a connection to these things, to these you know animals that you know many of us wish were still around or that we could see in, in life. And, I think that fascination is more important and more precious than being like, well, that T-Rex should have feathers or not, or whatever it is. Like, I know I have my preference and other people have their own preference, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of this is, you know, if folks are watching these movies and playing with the toys or, you know, whatever it is, however they're engaging with it, that it's still a connection to something that's real in the past. And, and it's where the you know science and imagination meets. And, you know, I might as well argue about like Godzilla not being scientifically accurate <laughs> or something. And I love those movies what? just, just <laughs> as much. I know it's a shocker, but <laughs> it's, it, it's, you mean there's like, there's like that Godzilla. I think there's like a newer Godzilla movie that came out a few years ago that has like, like there's like a tail, like a face in the tail or something. And like, <laughs> when did animals have, faces and their tails right which like i really wanted a sequel to that movie shin godzilla because i wanted to like find out what was going to happen next and apparently it's not going to happen or at least not anytime soon but yeah it's a matter of like somehow i think we're going to be okay even if we don't have you know the most accurate velociraptor the most accurate triceratops on screen i know what i would like to see and hopefully we eventually get there like who knows like i know this might be blasphemy to some and i admit i have my own mixed feelings about it but let's say like in another 10 years or something jurassic park gets remade and they say like you know okay we're gonna make the dinosaurs scientifically accurate this time we're kind of doing a redo of this um it'd be fascinating to see and i'm sure we'll we'll get it eventually but in the meantime like even just in terms of paleo art okay you don't like the the dinosaurs in jurassic world or, or whatever it is there's so much awesome paleo art being made professionally and avocationally right now, just on Twitter, just people who like just in their spare time draw art that is more amazing than anything I saw in a book when I was a kid. Like this is like the best time ever. You can find people who are extremely passionate. I have a friend of mine who's like very passionate about the Cenozoic mammal called Hupletomerix, this little antelope type thing. and just loves drawing this creature. And I love that fact that there are people, it's like not just here's 50 iterations of T-Rex and 50 iterations of Brontosaurus or whatever, but like almost any animal that you want to look up, somebody has done a rendition, a very loving rendition of. Well, that, okay. That brings me, cause I, want you to talk about your new book but also just really quickly i i mean through doing this series and just working on ologies and stuff over the last couple of years i've discovered a lot of scientists and psychom people's work and science writers and paleo artists and stuff on twitter and other social media platforms does being on there help with your work or is it just more of a tool for sharing? I think it does help with my work. If anything, I feel a little bad lately that I'm not sharing as many of my articles and it's more like, Hey everybody, I made carnitas today. Check it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's partially because like I'm working just about every day, but when articles come out, 
it's very scattershot. It may be like I'm working on three different stories in a week, but they all come out on the same day. And then the re- you don't see the behind the scenes stuff. You just see when it comes out and the way that the algorithm affects, you know, links and things like that. It might not even show up in people's feeds. Um, so I think the sharing part of it, it's still there. But like if I kind of hung my hat on the sharing aspect or trying to get like popular in social media, like I would have given up long ago. What it's great for and has been great for is meeting other people, sort of networking, finding paleo artists. I did something a couple months ago where I just said like, hey, like diverse paleo artists, like either comment on this or refer me to somebody in the comments if you know somebody and just like dozens and dozens of people I wasn't aware of at all, but doing amazing work were there and I got to follow them and I try and keep up now and like retweet their stuff. And that's been wonderful. And also just finding out about papers or kind of what's going on, what's the big topics or controversies going on in paleo stuff. Like it was one of the reasons that I wrote that or I wrote the story that's going to appear in that discover your end issue about the Spinosaurus tales, because I just saw so many people um, getting excited about it. So I think the main function for me isn't so much sharing my own stuff, even though I, I like to, but things are so fragmented that it's difficult to do that. It's more just being part of this ongoing conversation and finding new people that I wouldn't know existed otherwise. Or, you know, I, I like tweets with new papers, all like Tom Holtz on, uh, there's a paleontologist at the University of Maryland and like almost every single paleo paper there is, he tweets out at some point. And usually if it's like, Ooh, that's really interesting. And we save that and look that up for later. And maybe there'll be an article nice. going to a book or something. And that's the main use for me. That's really cool. And well, I mean, also, you know, talking about behind the scenes and, and Alyssa, did you see this dinosaur? Didn't you write it? Wasn't it a quick turnaround or something like that? Was that my understanding when you when you announced that the, your new book that's coming out? That's right. So I wrote it last year. So I got the call that um, the publisher was interested in having me write another uh, children's book. And, uh, and they needed it, I think, within about two weeks. And like I, ha- oh, I had the initial call with the editor as I was driving as part of this paleo convoy to the pilot mountains of Nevada to do some Triassic uh, field work, we were looking for these marine reptiles called Shonisaurus, like the biggest ichthyosaur that's ever been. Like imagine an ichthyosaur about the size of a humpback whale. And those are the animals that we were looking for. So I kept hoping that like I'd have enough, have enough phone service as I'm driving through Nevada oh. towards the spot. And thankfully I, I did and I had enough, but I was like sitting at like the camp table or wherever I could get cell service, turning my cell phone into a hotspot so I could like upload my manuscript draft to my email and send it out for the timeline that they needed because it overlapped almost exactly with when I was going to be in the field. So it was something where, you know, I felt pretty confident that I could do it. It it involves a little bit more narrative, like a lot of children's books about dinosaurs. It's like, you know, here's how you say the name. Here's when it lived. Here's a couple of tidbits about the animal, but it's like very encyclopedic. And this really, you know, it's, it's a paleo safari and it follows these two kid adventures as they go through the Triassic, Jurassic and Cretaceous. And it was a different kind of writing than I'm used to. And that was really fun. And I think once I got their personalities down and what I wanted the dynamic to be, it happened very organically. And I tried to alternate it. So it's like, it's not like one kid is the expert and the other kid isn't. It's like they have their own favorites. They have their own sort of things that they want to ask or do like while they're time traveling. So I think once I got the flow down, it happened pretty quickly. I remember the second part of the trip was at a Berlin Ichthyosaur State Park, which is a, a beautiful place. It's out in the middle of nowhere, but it's this beautiful historic place with this famous ichthyosaur, this famous uh, Shonisaurus 
quarry where multiple of these huge ichthyosaurs are buried in one place and sitting one morning at the campground table and just kind of wrapping up the manuscript and sending it out and hoping that the editor would like it. So it's a little bit more pressure than I would like, but sometimes that's not a bad thing. Sometimes like yeah. giving me too much time means like I just dither and like second guess myself. If it's Riley, we need this in a week. It's more likely to come out kind of, it's more likely to come out well and fresh and tight than if you give me infinite time to finish it. I'm excited to read it, but also I love, to me, it's that thing. It's like, if I'm getting a chance to talk about, you know, if you're, if you're having to give examples or talk about certain things, it's like always wanting to give not the, you know, you know, look, we love T-Rex, we love Stegosaurus, but like, let's, you know, let's talk about, you know, I, I, you mentioned that you were putting a few or at least, uh, you know, a handful of dinosaurs or even, um, prehistoric creatures that aren't the the more typical ones yeah i that was a big point for me especially in the uh, triassic chapter because i think originally they had sort of a, a slate of the animals that they wanted and there was a um a coelophysis and um just a, a slot for a pterosaur i thought okay well coelophysis like it's kind of like the typical like the standard bear for Triassic animals because of like the number of individuals that were found at Ghost Ranch. But I've done field work at Ghost Ranch and there's another quarry that there's a different sort of faunal composition, a different group of animals there. And one of them, I just love the name, it's named Tawa, T-A-W-A. It's like, okay, well, if I have to put like a Coelophysis-like theropod in this, why not Tawa? I've never seen Tawa in a book. That's kind of fun. I've got a personal connection to it. And then for the pterosaur, I picked uh, Celeste Ventus. So another uh, recent discovery, this one from uh, Utah, from just outside Dinosaur National Monument. And this be- there's a beautiful skull for this animal, this like big-headed, toothy pterosaur that only just got announced uh, a handful of years ago. And then I'm pretty certain like hasn't really been any book or any book quite like this. Uh, so I really wanted to take those opportunities. A lot of the rest of the book has, you know, kind of your standard favorites like Brachiosaurus, Mosasaurus is in there because it's just so popular after the Jurassic World movies. But at least early on or where possible, um, I tried to either involve new animals or new discoveries. Like I mentioned the Triceratops yeah. chapter about research about how they lock horns and you know how when they're younger, their brow horns curve backwards and eventually curve forwards, like putting in things like that, that give it a little bit more depth, not just like, Oh, look how cool that animal is, but like trying to sneak in as much new stuff as possible to kind of draw the reader into that world. That's exciting. Well, and it's also going to be, I mean, somebody's favorite, you know, there's, there's probably going to be a kid out there who's, you know, whose favorite new dinosaur is, is, uh, that Triassic dinosaur that, how do you say it? Tawa? Tawa. Yes. Tawa. Yeah. To me, that's exciting. That, that thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so. I, I really do. I mean, these are the kind of books that like, I remember as a kid, either at the grocery store or the museum shop or everything. Like, can I have that one? Um, so I, I hope it, it can be that for somebody else, even if, you know, I never get a letter or something someday, just, to know that it's out there and it might be helping like the next generation of dinosaur fans or paleontologists, you know, just engage just a little bit more. That makes me happy. Well, this has been, this has been such a blast. I have just one last question. What's the topic related to dinosaurs, fossils or natural history that you, you know, that you had like that you want to write about, but you haven't yet, or are you thinking about writing about? Oh, geez, I have a whole file of ideas that I want to get to eventually. I should say that I'm working on another book right now for St. Martin's Press, and this will be an adult trade book. So this will be similar to Skeleton Keys, My Beloved Brontosaurus and its audience oh, cool. about what happened um, during the KPG mass extinction. So the mass extinction that took out 
the non-avian dinosaurs that ended the Cretaceous took out 75% of known species. What happened in the second, the hour, the day, the week, the month, the year, century, millennia, first million years um, after impact? So basically it's the first chapter is the day before impact. And then the next follows from it is basically the moment of impact and really unpacking that. Because I think we often think about this mass extinction in terms of... Well, of course it makes sense. Of course, a, a six-mile asteroid strikes the planet, and there's going to be terrible devastation. Fact is, like that's happened to other times in Earth's history without a mass extinction. That this is a very special and particular event where really like the worst things continued to happen one on top of the other, and we're starting to get a re- some resolution in terms of you know what would if you were to stand in the Hell Creek ecosystem, what would you have experienced during that time, like as the atmosphere heated up as like the soot blot out the sun as you know ferns and stuff replaced the forests that were destroyed by fires as you know birds and early mammals started to proliferate so it's not so much descriptive as saying like you know this researcher is studying this and this is what they come to understand it's not going to be that format it's more like um, the forest unseen but just in the mesozoic where i'm trying to put you back as much as i can you know, in that ecosystem between 66 and 65 million years ago and just watch it change all the things that happen, kind of pulling your perspective to say, okay, these are what the birds are doing. These are what the mammals are doing. This is why like there are no more, you know, Tyrannosaurus around all that kind of stuff in terms of other articles I want to write about. Um, I've got a couple pitches out right now and we'll see what becomes of them. One thing that I've really wanted to get at in general is just uh, how ancient DNA studies are changing what we thought about ice age extinctions. So basically the loss of oh, cool. woolly mammoth and saber tooth cats and, you know, all our favorite place to see megafauna. Cause it <laughs> seems that there's a lot of effort right now that's going into not just looking at the, the fossil record and looking at, you know, the dates of what lived where and when, but using DNA to try and understand um, you know, what happened to these animals Were their populations flourishing, were they shrinking? Like even, Animals that survived, like coyotes, the fact that many coyotes were bigger in the Ice Age and that they they almost went extinct, but they didn't. And can the paleogenetics tell us anything about how they survived? And I think that's uh, an emerging story where I see lots of little tidbits appearing, but I want to do something synthetic with it. So hopefully I get to write that. And if they were all cubes at some point. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Uh, I love the mammoth cube. At first I was like, I, I spent, I made a mistake and I tried to understand where it came from and what was going on. And then after about 30 seconds, it's like, you know what? I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the domination of the mammoth cube on my feed for a little while. Like, I, I don't know the, the rhyme or reason. I'm just glad that it's here. <laughs> yeah, I I think I think your feed was when I first saw it and was like, what is? And then I there there was a uh, somebody who plays Jurassic World Evolution has modded it so that you can get the mammoth cube <laughs> in the in the game and i was i am like yeah i, I kind of had your perspective i was like it's whatever this is i'm loving it i don't know but i think we're at that that point as like everything continues to be chaotic and on fire and everything else like maybe i don't need to try too hard to understand something that just makes me fa- smile for a minute <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that the mammoth cube is here and i look forward to our next paleo meme whatever it may be <laughs> Yeah. And that, that, that upcoming book that you have, I mean, I got chills thinking about that. So that, that's super exciting. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. And if you, if you just... want to taste what it's going to be like, I think in uh, my beloved Brontosaurus, when I talk about the extinction, I tried to do a little scene setting with like imagining the last 
Triceratops and what uh, that dinosaur might have experienced sort of at the very <laughs> close of the Cretaceous. I had to read it once uh, for a radio show out loud and I almost started crying. Like, <laughs> I got a little teary-eyed. So unfortunately, there is going to be some tragedy, but it's a story about resilience. And I hope that's what people <laughs> get out of it in the end. Oh, wow. That's so exciting. Well, Riley, this has been so wonderful. It's so nice to to finally chat with you. Where can people buy the the new book, pre-order it? I think this will be out, or this will I think it'll come out actually maybe that week, but um, yeah, the new book and then any other, you know, follow your work, read all your writing. Right. So the new book is called, did you see that dinosaur? As far as I know, it's only up on uh, Amazon so far. So that's where you uh, pre-order it and that'll come out on September 29th. Uh, so that's a search and find book uh, and it'll be out yeah, at the, at the end of the month. And I'm really excited to finally see that out after doing that kind of brush job on, on the writing. <laughs> and if you want to keep up on the rest of my stuff, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Laylaps, spelled L-A-E-L-A-P-S. And I also run a uh, Patreon where I share daily fossil photos from my various museum and field travels, uh, exclusive blog posts that I don't post anywhere else. So if you want some uh, you know, additional writing or just to keep up on sort of what's new and interesting in paleontology, uh, you can also look me up there, spelled the same way, L-A-E-L-A-P-S. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Stephen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.